Sometimes I'm singing a song and you make that feel like death. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Fred Sasaki. This episode was really special for me because I was invited to interview my friend and my colleague, Ashley M. Jones. Ashley guest edited the spring and summer issues of Poetry Magazine during a really remarkable time in this publication's history. And her issues have provided us so much light and breath and clarity. You know, Ashley told us she was going to open the doors, the windows, our hearts and our minds, and she did. In this conversation, we talk about Ashley's new book, Reparations Now. I ask, what are reparations and what do they mean? When did that idea materialize in our own minds? We also talk about playing with Barbies, being God, and those times when we're just too cool for school. And with that, here is the incomparable Ashley M. Jones. Something that I always tell people when they ask, you know, what is your process? How do you find the poems that you want to write? It really has everything to do with listening to the spirit, that's what I call it. But the spirit means so many things. It means those ancestors and recognizing the lineage. I don't know that I always knew that I was in that lineage. You know, you look at some of these writers who you admire and you think, oh, that's them. I'm never going to be, you know, like them. But as I got older and started finding my own voice in the voices of these other poets like Sonia Sanchez, Lucio Clifton, Gwendolyn Brooks, Kevin Young even, and so many others, that's when I started to realize that, okay, yes, I am walking in their footsteps. I'm descended from Sister Sonia. I'm descended from Miss Lucille. I'm descended from Phyllis Wheatley. You know, all of these poets are speaking to me and through me which maybe is a little woo-woo, but you already know how I am, so. <laughs> no, I, I hear all that, and I hear all them. And what I also hear in this book is too slow, which I feel like is really brought to bear in these poems. So without further ado, will you read for us A Case for Reparations? Yes, I will. I should say, too, that this part of the poem is from a larger piece called Reparations Now, Reparations Tomorrow, Reparations Forever. A Case for Reparations. When, Governor, can we enjoy the full richness of the great American dream? My grandmother was a sharecropper. My grandfather beat his black wife and black children. My uncle was arrested for a crime he didn't commit. In America, even the shadows of black people are black enough to hide all innocence. Some nights, I dream of being killed like Emmett Till or Trayvon Martin or Sandra Bland or insert black person's name here. Some nights, I insert my name there. Is that the American dream? Governor, president, mayor, boss man, woman with a cell phone or a police badge or a bank account and the skin tender enough to make murder legal. When will you be tired of the taste of black blood? Sometimes I'm singing a song and you make that feel like death. 
Sometimes I'm dancing a dance and you make that feel like shame. Sometimes I'm sitting on my porch just trying to eat a damn melon and you make that feel like I'm selling my black soul. My parents told me I could be anything, even God. That's the least I'm owed. To know I'm worth heaven, yes, but also worth a life on earth. My mother told us we were pretty enough to be dolls, pretty enough to be praised in the book of Barbie. That's the least I'm owed, a face, skin, hair, so obviously, inherently, objectively beautiful. It's frozen in plastic and sold to kids all over America to hug and love and look at with the eyes of dreams. What, you think all I want is money? What, you think money can ever repay what you stole? Give me land. Give me all the blood you ripped out of our backs, our veins. Give me every snapped neck and the noose you wove to hoist the body up. Give me the screams you silenced in so many dark and lustful rooms. Give me the songs you said were yours, but you know came out of our lips first. Give me back Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers. Give me back the beauty of my hair, the swell of my hips, the big of my lips. Give me back the whole Atlantic Ocean. Give me a never-ending blue and a mule. Thank you so much, Ashley such a great reading. Wow, so much to talk about in this wonderful poem. This poem is resonating with a poem I was just reading yesterday by Patricia Smith, uh, What You Pray Toward. And in the last section of this poem, she asks, are we God? Hmm. And I love this line, my parents told me I could be anything, even God. And I'm wondering if you could speak on that. I can. Um, first of all, it is an honor to be mentioned in the same breath as Patricia Smith. She's like everything. She's everything, period. Um, but yeah, that that line, in my poem at least, um, goes back to the way that I was raised, which the older I get, the more I'm just so grateful for my parents and how they somehow saw what it, what it took to raise Black people, Black children, to be proud of themselves. They always um, would say, we didn't know what we were doing, but somebody was telling them something. You know, they had... Jesus on the main line or whatever, you know, to tell them exactly how to raise us. Um, and so when we were young, we were always told by our mom and our dad that we were beautiful, that blackness was great. We only had black dolls. My mom did not allow us to buy any other doll but a black doll. Um, we were able to branch out into like the Latina doll, Teresa, and we got a Mulan doll, which was pushing it. I mean, we didn't, she didn't want anything pale. <laughs> you know, she was like, you got to know that you're, you are enough. And it wasn't because, like, some people I tell this story to, they're like, oh, so your mom was, like, racist. And I'm like, well, no. Well, first of all, maybe we are all a little bit racist. I think we should all admit that. The world would be a better place if we admitted a lot of things. But she wasn't racist, necessarily. She just knew, having grown up in the 60s, 70s, when she did not have Black dolls available, her mom would bring home the white dolls that um, other white people would throw out or whatever, let me rephrase that because I can hear my mom listening to it. I'm going to say it differently. 
she didn't have black dolls. Um, she only had white dolls that her mom would bring home. I mean, she, she didn't grow up with low self-esteem, but she knew when she had us that she didn't want us to feel like we had to aspire to whiteness in any way. So from even something as seemingly small as a Barbie doll or a baby doll, whatever doll, paper dolls, any doll that came in our house was black. Um, when we talked about God, we knew that Jesus could be black to us. Santa Claus was black. My dad bought a Santa Claus decoration and literally painted him brown. That's how deep it was in my household. And I didn't know how important that was until I became an adult. And I started teaching students and meeting just even adults who did not know that they were enough on their own. And it just means so much to a child to, to hear a parent say, your God is black. God, the biggest thing we could ever think of is black like you. That's how good blackness can be. And that's a part of reparations to me, just giving us back the idea that we can actually mean something to ourselves and to others. I love the answer you give to, you know, what? You, you think all I want is money? How many times do we need to say that? I also, I love what you're talking about with Barbie, pretty enough to be praised in the book of Barbie. And so, you know, I have two daughters and Barbie is a fixture in our lives. And so are the, is the ever-present swell of, of white dolls. Um, and I actually, you know, had a, it wasn't an argument, but I, I had to put my foot down and I think I said it too loudly in a store, no more white babies. Like, <laughs> I was like, no more. Like, I'm not buying another one. That's it. Yeah. I, you know, and always trying to steer my children toward dolls that mm -hmm. look like them or darker, mm -hmm. you know, and just like, you know, cut it out. And of course, the children don't understand, you know, exactly. They do. But they said, what, you don't like white babies? You know, <laughs> loudly for everyone to hear. So it's not about right. that. We love white babies. <laughs> we love everybody. <laughs> and I will send you a picture of the uh, the Fred Barbie I bought to complete the child's family. <laughs> they were very excited to see Papa come in That's the mail. That's amazing. Please send that. Yes. Give me the screams. Give me the songs you said were yours, but you know came out of our lips first. Um, so can we talk about when did you first sort of learn what reparations are like when, when did you when do you feel like you you knew what reparations were when did you learn about that and I, I could tell you when I learned about my own family receiving reparations for their incarceration during the second world war as Japanese Americans um, but yeah you go first I think that maybe I first learned wrongly what they were if that makes any sense like you hear about we deserve 40 acres and a mule from slavery like that's kind of all you hear you don't really learn about it, or I didn't learn about it in school or anything. Um, and then as I got older, I would like start to hear people in different circles talk about reparations. And recently there have been some like political discussions about them. So I think maybe the real answer is I didn't really learn fully what they were and why they were necessary until I was writing this book, honestly. Before then, it was all just like, oh, the government's going to give us a check, you know, or something like that. And it is super not that. Like, the check is the least of my worries, honestly. I mean, I'm not going to say no to a check. Let me make that clear also. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's not about a check. I want to be able to walk down the street and not feel like I'm going to get killed because I'm Black. I want my children to feel like they're represented. I don't have any kids yet. But if I have them, I want, or at least I want to imagine my children 
feeling secure, feeling safe, feeling supported. I want to imagine a world where it's not some sort of political act, a radical act to teach Black texts or to teach texts by Native Americans, by Asian Americans, by people um, from the queer community. I don't want that to be radical anymore. That's what reparations are. I want everyone to be liberated, free, you know, given what they are owed, which is just basic humanity. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really learn about that until I was, you know, writing this book and sort of thinking about it in that way. Thank you. That's such a, a such a great answer and so so honest and true. Like you know, because I feel like even reading this poem, you you learn more about what reparations are just even in that, that sort of ending, like, you know, give me back the whole Atlantic Ocean, give me a never ending blue. And the, the idea what you're talking about, not, not about a check, right? And that never ending blue, like the American dream, which you um, referenced earlier in the poem. Yeah. And so I asked myself, when did I learn what reparations are? And when did I learn about my father's side of the family receiving reparations for being incarcerated in American concentration camps during the Second World War. Of course, the memory is very vague, but I remember being in my grandma Mona's. Uh, I remember the old Japanese man living in my basement who had been incarcerated, mm -hmm. who was no relation, but, you know, he sort of just kind of held on with the family during resettlement. And then he just became Jerry, who lived in the store during the week hmm. and in my grandma's house on the weekend. I remember something about money, maybe an apology, you know, but it was more so about the, the money. And then a lot of the conflict and confusion within my family about what it is that happened. And so I feel like at that time, and even maybe now, like, well, at that time, I had no concept what reparations are or what the damage was, mm -hmm. like what exactly was lost. Also, we, we have a certain obligation to speak to the youth and to work through these things, to reckon with it. And you're a teacher. You work with the youth. I would love you to tell us about your, your role as a teacher and how do you grapple with those obligations, with those responsibilities, with those readings in those spaces while you're reckoning with reparations and white supremacy and saying all the things that need to be said to people who might not be ready to hear it. Hmm. I mean, it's hard is the simple answer to that question. It's definitely difficult. Yeah, being a teacher, I said earlier, I don't have any kids and maybe that's not true. I am a teacher of many, many grade levels. And those, those students are very much like my own children. And I feel like maybe I use the Jones method of parenting, you know, with them where I just let the spirit lead me and I, I keep in mind that I'm here to make sure these students, these people are liberated in some way. I feel like I can't let people leave my care and in my care means in my classroom, in a reading, in a conversation, anywhere I am, in a poem that I've written, I can't let anybody leave that care without having tried to at least tell them the truth, which is uncomfortable most of the time. I definitely have had some interesting run-ins with people being averse to a political education, so. Sure, you know, and so I was with my, I was walking our puppy with the kids, you know, just having a nice time out in the sunshine, you know, meeting other families. And we met this nice family. We loved the puppy together. We talked 
And the next thing you knew, the mom was going off on me about how our teachers, we're both at Chicago Public Schools, are trying to turn our children into little activists and brainwashing them. She didn't say um, critical race theory, but it was getting there. And uh, I was like, I'm, we're just trying to walk our dog. Uh, like, why, uh, like, what? Even, you know, my daughter was just like <laughs> looking at her like, what is happening? So I can only imagine, Ashley. And I want to know what it is that people look at. Like, when that's happened to me, too. I'm like, what about me has told you that this is the conversation I want to have with you? <laughs> is it on my face? Like, I, I'm clearly... I'm I'm not this person, but you have seen me as someone who is the one, as they say, you know, like I'm actually not the one. I'm not the one. That's right. Um, So, yeah. So take us through uh, this reading. And if you could read your poem, a poem in which I am too political to read at your school. Yeah. And then we could talk about it after because I got some questions. Sure. I know you do, Fred. (laughs) All right. Poem in which I am too political to read at your school. A rose, single, silent, and soft, opens. Red petals, tender, innocent, fragrant. What beauty, how holy. Peace, unbroken, in the rose's solid stem. O ancient wonder, rose of unsullied joy, I sing to the majesty of your sun-loved face, your color so pure, petal fine as wing, leaf's thin veins, a natural puzzle of lace. Even your thorns are worthy of my praise. They're spikes but soldiers keeping you from harm. A stab could set my fingers all ablaze, but still your grace would silence all alarm. Except the rose was black and you killed it, black and you silenced it, black and you raped it, black and it could not vote, black and it got in the wrong garden, so you had to use pesticide, had to poison its water and all the little black rose babies, had to stop teaching it to read. It was black, so you pulled it up by the roots with a knife shaped just like America, just like the government, just like white Jesus, just like your mouth leaking, bless your heart. You severed its roots and you chewed them whole and you smiled as it withered, searching for home. I just love the setup, especially imagining you reading it at a school. Uh, This just worked for me on so many different levels, you know, I'm, you know, very familiar with school-like spaces, being around kids and teachers and poetry readings and the expectation of a poem. What people have come to hear, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, and they sort of sit into, they, they sort of ease into the poem and begin nodding their heads and appreciating life and beauty and all of the the, the flowering things around them and then the poem hits midway through this poem it takes that turn and i i I, it, it like it made me laugh like you know imagining that scene 
I feel it, I also feel a little uh, worried about ask because right because this is nothing to laugh at, but that was my reaction. Um, so yeah, when when you're reading this poem, like do do folks ever laugh in the middle of it? Um, it's funny. They've never laughed in the middle of this one. They've laughed at the title, um, but not in the middle of the poem. The laugh that you're talking about, I think, is not one of amusement per se, or of this sort of um, aloof out of tune, you know, feeling that some people have because they don't get it. The laugh you're talking about, I think is one, a knowing laugh of, okay, it's time. It's time to talk about this thing that I've wanted to talk about for so long. But there is that other laugh, that other laugh where people really don't understand what's happening or they somehow find amusement in other people's pain. And it reminds me of a recording of Lucille Clifton reading Cutting Greens, where people start to laugh just at the mention of the title, um, at the mention of Greens, and it's not funny. The poem is not funny. And that's an experience I think a lot of us have, at least as Black poets, maybe others experience it too, where we are just trying to say, here I am, here's what's happening, and it's met with ha ha ha, which maybe represents the history of this country. This is a poem called Cutting Greens. I've read it before, and uh, I'm pleased to see that what happened that time didn't happen this time. When I read it before, I said, cutting greens, and people laughed. To which I said, cutting greens, greens aren't funny, greens are good. Anyhow, cutting greens. Curling them around, I hold their bodies in obscene embrace, thinking of everything but kinship. Collards and kale strain against each strange other, away from my kiss-making hand and the iron bed pot. The pot is black. The cutting board is black. My hand. And just for a minute, the greens roll black under the knife, and the kitchen twists dark on its spine, and I taste in my natural appetite the bond of live things everywhere. I think the reason that I constructed the poem in that way, to go from a traditional sonnet with lines, like traditional lineated sonnet, to this like prose block in the middle, is to do that thing, to like let people get lulled into, uh, oh yeah, we love roses, nature, this is safe. And then you're hit, like you said, it, it is meant to hit you into this block of prose where you can't really escape. But yeah, people usually laugh when I say the title, because they're like, oh, ha, 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 that's so funny. But then they hear the story behind it, and then they hear the poem, and they're like, oh, no, oh, no, no. Um, and the story behind it, maybe I should say, is that I was invited um, to do this, like, author day at a local school. It was a Catholic school, which maybe matters to this story, a Catholic private school. And the lady who invited me was all cool until I sent her a link to my website. I was like, oh, well, here's some information about me. And she came back like maybe an hour later and she said, oh, um, I think you're not going to be a good fit, you know, because of subject matter. And I was like, first of all, girl, I'm a teacher. Like, how do you think I don't know how to choose poems for kids? First of all, like you're questioning my professionalism for one. For two, what content exactly are we shielding our children from? That's where the previous conversation comes into play about when do we teach kids about these things? When do they learn? A lot of people, I think, would rather they never learn about politics, about 
people being murdered. I always tell people I was five when I first experienced racism. And I think even younger than that, when I first learned what racism was, if I can experience that, and some people are even younger than five, you know, if I can experience that as a black child, every other child has the capacity to learn about it. Learning about it is not the same as experiencing it. And these people who are going to all these school board meetings saying, we can't teach critical race theory, blah, blah, blah. They're not understanding that there are children already traumatized at a young age. I enter a room and there's trauma there waiting for me, no matter how old I am. And the same is true as an adult now, like people, once they learn what I write about, like in this case with this poem, that was a traumatic experience for me. I've never been disinvited to anything because in my world, everybody knows that I care so much about everybody. I care about children. I care about poetry and that I'm always going to do my best job. And for this person to decide based on either the fact that I was black, I don't think she knew who I was. You know, she looked at the website and you could see my face, you know, and read some of my poems. And she, I guess, was scared that I was going to talk about race, perhaps. She didn't even ask me. She just made an assumption, just like this woman who came up on you and your dog. You know, she made an assumption that was harmful. So no, to answer your question, nobody has laughed at the poem. And it has happened to friends of mine before. Like they'll read a poem that's like not funny. It's about race or whatever. And there's people in the audience giggling. But that goes back, not to be this person, but it really goes back to reparations too. I should be able to read a poem about my experience and you not take it personally. There's there's a limit to me too, to people coming up after a reading and just being so like, oh my gosh, I'm so broken down by this, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad that you're broken down because I mean, you're experiencing emotion. But can you also consider what I felt to have to write that poem? It's not about you and your tears right now. I'm trying to tell you a truth and then you can go home to your own space and do all of that work yourself. I am not here to do that work for you. Um, I don't know how this became me talking about my frustrations with people at readings, but that's where we are. We're here. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm so glad that you're saying that. And, you know, I felt reading your poems, like the toll of these poems, you know, you're addressing, you're grappling with so many difficult, difficult, uh, so so much atrocity and telling that story and telling the detail i was thinking about you know of course how difficult that is to read but how you have embodied that and the toll that that takes on you as a as a poet as a person uh reliving that um embodying it and just that is so outrageous that that person disinvited you in that way and it reminds me of you know things that we experience at poetry foundation we've made recommendations for example to include a we real cool gwendolyn brooks's you know great poem in curriculum for children and it being rejected you know for being too wow too dark or we real cool yes Come yes on. i mean it is but like Come on. <laughs> and this was Goodness just in the last couple of years, you know? So like when when do we wow. stop? When do we when <laughs> when do we listen? Now, exclamation point. We real cool. The pool players seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we. Jazz June we die soon. 
I think people who are people who are so concerned with not teaching children about race, I wish they would just like maybe do more in their regular lives to stop racism. Like that's an easy solution. If you don't want us to teach about it, maybe stop doing it. Very easy. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you for that, Ashley. But yes. I uh, love listening to you and learning from you. I was hoping that you could take us through summer vacation in the subjunctive and begin as teacher Ashley in explaining to us what is the subjunctive mood? Oh, Lord. Well, let me let me start. I am not a grammar teacher. Grammar teachers of the world, please, you know, be patient with me as I give this answer, because it's not my ministry, as they say. I'm just a writing, creative writing teacher. But the subjunctive tense is like a conditional, I believe, tense where you're you say things like if I were, if I would, if I did. It's it's based in this if moment. So these things have not yet happened. You're sort of imagining that they happened or you're it's conditional, like I said. So if is the base. And I have to give credit to the poet Carl Phillips and the poet Monica Sook because that's where this poem came from. Monica was at the Kenyan Writers Workshop working with Carl Phillips. Monica's a good friend of mine and she was texting me about all the exercises that she was doing. And she told me about this one where Carl Phillips asked the students to write a poem totally in the subjunctive tense. I did not go to the Kenyan Writers Workshop, but I got my little free exercise. Uh, I wrote, wrote this poem in the subjunctive tense and it was attractive to me, this tense, because it sort of seemed like magic, like I could erase something from my future or my past by just saying, if I were, if I did this. Now in reality, and in this poem specifically, something really did happen. I really did have this horrible time with this horrible man. So that's where this poem comes from, which is happy, I think, in a way, to my earlier point, because it is, I think, giving power back to me or to whoever reads it to let them know that you actually can erase things as if by magic. They did happen. You don't have to forget that they happened, but you can sort of imagine a different past or future for yourself just using language. Ashley, that was so brilliant. I'm so glad I asked and so excited to hear you read it. And so when I, you know, had to look up myself, the subjunctive mood and was so captivated by thinking about this mood, this unreality or the wish, the emotion, the possibility are the words that were used to describe this mood. And I was really feeling that and also feeling not that this is a light poem, but there's a lightness to it, or I felt like a remove in comparison to the other poems. And I just, I, I really loved that floating feeling. So yeah, without further ado, if you would uh, bless us with this poem. Yes, I love the word bless. Poems are blessings. Summer Vacation in the Subjunctive. If I were a woman. If I were a wanted woman. If I were a woman with soft fingers. If I were on a beach with a man. If he was a man. If a man can be a man before he acts like a man. If I were on a beach with that man and he held my hand. If I liked my hand being held, even if it was held at the wrong angle. If my wrist was ringing in pain, but I kept it there. If my heart were held wrong, like my hand. If I kept it there. If I was kept 
If I was kept in pain, if I were pain, if I were a woman, if I were a woman before I was a woman, if I were a woman who knew her body like a woman knows her body, if a woman knew, if I knew, if I were on a beach with that man, if this time that man dissolved into sand, if the sand became hot under my feet, but my feet were gold, if a woman were made of sun, if I were made of sun, if I burned the world around me until it shone beautiful and brown, if this burning was called healing, if the healing made light. Love that poem. So, so funny. the first thing I wanted to say after he, he, listening to you read that was how I feel like I could spend a whole episode on this one line, if a man can be a man before he acts like a man. But then I thought, wow, what? it's, it's such a man thing to do to want to just focus on that, that line. No, it's a lot in that line, Fred. <laughs> You're exactly right. There's lots, okay, in that line. <laughs> but I really appreciate that and want to just read it over and over again and think about it. Um, I loved so many of the moments in here, if I liked my hand being held, even if it was held at the wrong angle. I mean, a lot of it for me, um, just talking about liberating myself, you know, from, from feeling shame around enjoying this relationship with this man who was not faithful to anything, you know, um, certainly not me. I wanted to relieve myself of the pressure of the shame of being this person who's, you know, feminist, whatever, self-confident, all this stuff, and still being in this relationship and enjoying it and being like, oh, I'm holding your hand. I'm so glad I'm here with you, knowing that that you is not great. You know, I felt so many things um, around this relationship, a lot of pain, but there was a lot of joy, too. And I had to try to figure out a way to exist happily within myself, knowing that that I could think happily about him while knowing the bad things, if that makes any sense. And that's another kind of reparations, I think, that I explored in these poems because I wrote them at a time in life when I just kept having these kind of terrible experiences with men and having to really allow myself to give myself time back, to give myself care back, to tell myself you're still worthy of good things and a good relationship and whatever, even though you've been through all of these horrible relationships, I'm still telling myself that. It's a daily sermon to myself that I'm still worthy and that I can still imagine a different future for myself, no matter what I've been through in the past. And I did not come here to preach. I always say that to my friends. I didn't come here to preach, but it's coming. It's coming. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not sorry. But yeah, the, this poem is a really important one to me for that reason, because it was one of the first times that I wrote about this particular situation and that I felt like I could end the poem on light and on healing instead of just on the pain that this person caused me. Something I'm picking up on of what you said and I feel like echoes throughout the book is right this reminder of how we're worthy of love and being worthy of love. And for me, too, demanding love, you know, like... 
and to be comfortable with like, no, I demand love. Like I deserve this. This is for me. And going back to what we started off talking about, you know, it's not about money. Like this is about love. It really is. That should go on a t-shirt. It's not about money. It's about love because it's so true. It's so true in all levels of this conversation we've, that we've been talking about or we've been having. It does come down to love. And I don't mean that in the kumbaya sort of way. I just mean it, it does come down to I love me. I'd like for you to love you so that I could keep loving me alive here on Earth. That's really, I think, what it all boils down to. I am in no way, when I ask for reparations, wanting people to change their whole worldview. If you want to be hateful in your own corner, that's your corner. Do what you want to do in your corner. But love yourself and your own hatefulness enough to keep it with you. I'll keep my stuff with me. You know, I'll spread love how I would like to. That's all it is. Yeah, and it's in every facet of our life. In the classroom, in our relationships, within ourselves, in our hearts. It's everywhere. It's everything. Ashley M. Jones is the author of three poetry collections. Her newest book, Reparations Now, will be out this September. Jones lives in Birmingham, Alabama, where she is the founding director of the Magic City Poetry Festival. She also expertly guest edited the last three issues of Poetry Magazine. If you're enjoying the Poetry Magazine podcast, let us know. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not yet a subscriber to the magazine, there's a special rate for podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a full year of the magazine for $20. That's 11 book-length issues for just $20. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, John McCowan, Rob Mazurik, and Irreversible Entanglements. Okay, that's it. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks, as always, for listening. Mm-hmm.